0: You're listening to the Rugged Legacy Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Putnam. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Rugged Legacy Podcast. Today, I'm joined by the author of these, this generation's great American novel, probably the previous generations and the next generations as well, Sanction. Uh, Roman McClay has put 1.4 million words uh, into a nanobot that crawls through your fucking brain and destroys you from the inside out. And it's just prolific and amazing. And I am honored to be joined by the author today. So, Roman, how you doing, brother? Hey, hey Jeff. I'm good, man. How are you? I'm living the dream. You know how it is. Scotch and black coffee. <laughs> yeah. So... It's, I would be amazed if anybody hasn't heard of Sanction at this point, and even more amazed if people don't know a little bit of the pedigree details about you. You said, Fuck civilization. And you went to the top of a mountain in the middle of God's nowhere in the Colorado wilderness. And you built your home out of a shipping container. 100% custom, right?
1: All right, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. And it took you 10 months to write all three books. You know, each book is what, 400,000 words, give or take?
1: Yeah, about 450 apiece, yeah.
0: And it took you 10 months to scrawl all that out. And I suppose it was easy without having a, a shitload of people around to bug you. You know,
1: yeah, I didn't see anyone ever, and it's uh like it's the kind of thing you know in your head, like oh, if I don't see people for a year, I'll get a lot done. Like you know that, you know it. I know everyone knows it, but then when you live it, it's different. It's just the kind of thing. You, it's like trying to explain a peyote trip or an acid trip to someone. Like you just have to do it. It's the only way. It's just one of those unique experiences of total isolation in the wilderness that changes you. And you cannot, you cannot accurately describe the changes that happen to you, you know, biochemically, psychologically, philosophically. You just can't. But I will say that it was a transformational experience. And I, and I think the book, to the extent that anything could do it, the book does it. So if if I if I can describe it then the book is the way to do it not not right now between me and you does that make sense
0: Yeah it it makes perfect sense uh you can notice uh I'm at the end of book 1 of 3 now and getting ready to start book 2 here soon and I noticed there is a bit of an evolution between from all of the characters, even though everything is put out in this very nonlinear timeline. uh, There's a bit of an evolution uh, with the characters that you see. And it it almost feels like you were evolving as you were writing it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely accurate. And people that have read book two will tell you there is a, a discernible difference between book two and book one.
0: Yeah. That's what I keep hearing from everyone who's read it. But for those who haven't heard or haven't read book one yet, the premise is there is a very corrupt businessman who seeks to change the behavior of criminal, basically seeks to eliminate criminality uh, at a molecular level by going in and changing gene expression. And he knows he can't do it. Uh, without being a little bit more influential. So he runs for governor and through all of this, there is, and I get a lot of shit for saying this, the hero of the story, the mass murderer who is basically his, his muse. He's he's everything that he wants to change. He is the epitomized criminal to this guy. And, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but this guy ends up getting cloned by an AI that was created by another AI and they wreak total hell and havoc on modernity as a whole. And it is it is quite one hell of a ride, but it's also a bit of a mind fuck too. There's What you did is you went through... And I've seen the photographs of your research while you were writing papers scattered all over the place like a madman uh, going through research to get everything as accurate as you possibly could. As far as the scientific data and the studies going all the way back to uh, the split of the bicameral brain.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know let's not pretend that it's a uh, research paper out of Harvard or anything. It's a work of fiction, but yeah, I mean, I, I did cross my T's and dot my eyes. I mean, I, I, I feel very confident about the nonfiction parts of the book. The, the research I feel very confident about it because I, I actually spent an enormous amount of time making sure I got things correct. Um, and so I, and I did that for, for reasons because I knew the book would be attacked eventually and so I wanted the non-fiction parts to be sufficient buttress for the fiction parts that it would it would be in a a certain way maybe not unassailable but, but heavily fortified against attacks from our enemies. And, and I also, you know, I wanted to give the reader an accurate description of kind of the substrate for the story, you know. I mean, I basically look at it like, like I wanted the reader to feel a certain level of confidence. Because a, such a huge part of fiction, whether it's a movie or a book, such a huge part of it is this notion of suspension of disbelief, right? Like, the brain switches into a, a mode of believing what it reads, and I felt like if I just made shit up, if I just made the data and the science and the math and the history, if I just made that up, I would be, uh, I would be uh, cheating uh, on this agreement that me and the reader have this suspension of disbelief right and and so if I did my homework and, and I did the research then me and the reader could have a handshake deal that this was as real it was as it's going to get in a work of fiction and I, I don't know why but that was very important to me because really the only thing I have at this point in my life is my integrity I have nothing left and so I had to feel that the book had integrity. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't errors, there aren't mistakes. I mean, some of the mistakes are actually on purpose because that's part of the plot of the book, but it doesn't even—it doesn't mean that there aren't mistakes that I'm not aware of that I'll find out in six months or six years. But the point is, is that I took the reader seriously and I wanted him or her to, to feel confident that I wasn't lying to them and um and so the research part of the book was was very important to me
0: yeah i noticed uh when i first uh on my first attempt to read through book 1 uh there was a lot that it seemed self evident but then of course the with the documentation and the bibliography that was cited within as far as uh backing up the science and the quotes from these actual published research papers and all that, it did pull me into that universe. And what's terrifying about it and fascinating at the same time is it pulls you in and while it's pulling you in, it kind of lifts away this veil of, I guess, what we could call a, a lens of societal norm or modernity as it were. And it plunges you into the most base and primal essence of what life is. And it takes you down some really dark rabbit holes. But the thing that I think has been most fascinating with seeing the way this book has evolved uh, into a living thing from your followers, from your fans, from the readers, uh, from guys like myself who are friends and fans the book tells people a very uncomfortable truth to quote that prick Al Gore. It tells a very uncomfortable truth that shit is not what people think it is. And when it all boils down to it, it's nature bats last and you're not going to be able to escape from that. Yeah.
1: So because it's three books, each book is kind of a, uh, a part of the card trick. I, I consider the three books a card trick. And so uh, the payoff is really book three, I have to admit. It doesn't mean one and two aren't fun. And so part of the card trick of one and two is this idea of biology. And, and so it starts off kind of political Right with the the governor and his political aims, which you outlined in the beginning. You know he has political aims. He basically wants to take control of the political process, by, by becoming governor of the state of Colorado, so he can access, so he can have access to this criminal, this recidivist criminal population, so he can change them. But it's basically, you know what? I'm I was about to give a spoiler. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to back off. But the point what is, is that it starts off kind of political. But as you alluded to, there's some of us who feel like the, that the biological undergirds the political and, in fact, is more important. And so I feel like most people, myself, you, normal people, tend to spend a lot of our time focused on the political machinations of our country and the world. So we spend a lot of time talking about politics. And, and I feel like, well, that stuff's interesting. I mean, I'm interested in it. I also feel it's a thin veneer on the reality of our lives. I feel the majority of our lives is actually encompassed in the biological and, and then underneath that is the physics or the math. And, and that the biological domain has much more impact on our real lives than we acknowledge. And I, I often use the analogy of a car so when people see a car they often see the body lines, they see the paint job. They don't see the drivetrain. They don't know what's under the hood. They don't know if it's a Hurst 4-speed or a Ford 9-inch rear end. They don't know if there's a 426 HEMI in the hood or not. Not until they pop it, not until they drive it. So their first glance at it is just the lines and the color. And I feel like that's what politics are, the lines and the color. But that the drivetrain Is biology the drivetrain is what really motivates and moves that car and and it's hidden from us most of the time right like cars are built in such a way you don't see the drivetrain and and i feel like society is built in such a way that we don't see biology but it's there it's what's really moving us and it's in me it's in you it's in everyone and because of that because it's both fundamental foundational and hidden I feel that it has this, this power over us. And I, and part of the point of sanction was to, um, to reveal it, to reveal it not just in the data, but in the story. And one of the ways I, I, I attempted to do that was to show the inner workings of the character's minds. Because I felt like the inner workings of the character's minds was a good lens into what was really going on with their animal core cells. Because in their minds, they're much more honest than with their mouths. And, and we all know this, right? We say maybe 20% of what we think, right? We hold our tongues because we don't want to get divorced. We don't want to go to jail. We don't want to get fired. So we hold our tongues. And, and so in the, in the book, the characters don't have that option because the narrator as he says in the very first 19 pages has access to the brains of all the characters he has access to every engram which is like a memory every thought process every everything and so that's how you as a reader know what blacks is thinking what the inmate is thinking what jack three is thinking is because the narrator has access to the brain through fmri technology dti technology and other things and I did that because I wanted to pull back the curtain on the reality of of the way men and women think because it's much more animal than we admit to it's much more raw than we admit to now look I'm not saying there aren't some people who are transparent there are there are people that just say whatever they have no filter and I'm not saying there aren't people that are Nice, decent, there are. But the majority of people are pretty animal. And so you put them in a nice air conditioned room with plenty of food and drink and no threats, they'll be nice. You put them in an environment with no food, no water and uh, predators all around uh, in an environment of austerity, they're, they're gonna get nasty because we're, that's how we're built. We're built to survive. And so when shit gets tough, we're gonna get mean. And, and i feel like people kind of walk around with that running mean guy on, on the operating system but they don't share it so they act nice and pleasant they look nice they look pleasant uh but it's there all the time and so part of the rationale for the book was if i show not just the behavior of these characters but the inner workings you'll get to see what i consider to be the drivetrain of humanity that hidden 426 Hemi under the hood, man, that is just built for Doom.
0: Yeah, and you know what's very interesting about that is every review that I've read, uh, my own feelings included, people have read the, I guess you could call them the ruminations of the characters uh, when they're placed in whatever situation and, and the way that they are responding. And you break it down so meticulously in uh, and, and much deeper levels than most of us even think on, uh, you know, if we're writing a thesis on something, you broke it down into so many specific detailed layers that a lot of people and myself, you know, are, are am included in this. We came to a deeper understanding of why we do things we do, why we feel the way we feel what it means when this happens and we have this kind of response and it it makes us ask more questions uh, than the book will actually give answers to uh you know especially since you uh, what i love about it is you break things down into uh base levels of three you look at what it is you know which is right there on the plane of this existence and then you go below which is the biology. And then you go one step above, which is more of the ontological and the deeper meaning behind it all. And when you pair all those three together, it's created a map of, of themselves for the readers is what it's done. And I think that's fascinating, the way that every person is getting something different out of this book. But at the same time, they're all getting, they're all getting a, this, a map, but they just have different directions on them is what I'm trying to say.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, That's a good way to put it. Thank you. Um, And then I'll just add that it's a bit of an orverous asp, right? Like the, the snake that eats its tail, right? Everybody's familiar with that iconography. And so the ontological, as you said, is the religious, but it's also the math and the math undergirds the biology. And so the three levels are actually a circle. So even though the biology is at bottom and the ontology is at top, and then our terrestrial plane is in the middle, that ontology actually undergirds the biology, in my opinion, and and that's how the book is constructed. And so it is an aurorbrous asp. It's a snake that eats its tail. Um, and I believe that to be the fundamental construction of nature. Um, and so that's the funhouse mirror of the book is no matter what level you look at, there is always a level below and a level above, even if you think you're a bottom. Right. Like if you think, oh, I'm looking at the biology. Well, there's one level below. There's the physics and the math. And even if you think you're looking at the top, which is the ontology of God, well, there's also the mystery of God Himself. Right. Like, like you can believe in God and still not understand. Him, right. I, I mean, I don't I certainly don't understand God. And that is a that is a presupposition of the book as well, is that yeah, we can talk about God. We can pre supposes existence or, or if you're um, a pagan, the, you know, the, the pantheon of the gods, you can assume them and, and acknowledge them and still not necessarily understand them. And so that what that presupposes is that there is a level of motivation deep or above them that is opaque to us. And so the real point, I think, of, of everything I just said is that is that no matter where you look in the book, whether it's at the ontological or the biological, there is always a level beyond your comprehension, both as a reader and then as an author. And and that's super important because I felt like it was incumbent on me as an artist to acknowledge up front that not only is the book written with an unreliable narrator, which is a common trope, but it's not just an unreliable narrator. It's an unreliable author. This guy, I'm unreliable. And the reader is unreliable. Now this, this is, again, I don't know how people will take that. They'll either say, well, yeah, no shit. Or they'll get offended and be like, what do you mean? Like, you know, I think most people walk around thinking of themselves as smart and honest. And I'm basically saying, no, you're stupid and you're a liar. (laughs) And that, and and I'm saying it about me too. I'm saying I'm a stupid liar too, and so when you start from that position, I mean you're just you're just like asking for trouble. Because I think most artists have have wedged themselves into this commercial domain where they have to make a buck, and so they have to ingratiate themselves with the reader. They have to pander. And I I wrote a tweet the other day. I, was like, I don't fucking pander, man. Fuck that. I don't care if people hate me because of the book i don't now it just so happens that people love the book which is weird but i didn't expect that because the book is so offensive that i thought most people would i mean i really thought people would just hate it and so the reason i say all that is because it's important for the reader to understand that that the book itself is an open wound it's it's an open wound of, of my body and psyche and of theirs. Now, I've had people tell me flat out that when they read my book, they have had moments where they have broke down and become uh, lacrimose. They've wept, wept, I believe is the correct term there, wept from it. and And they have had moments of doubt in their own philosophy, their own arc of their life. They've had moments of rage, anger at me, at the characters, uh, at the world. And so the book has has made people have visceral reactions that are typically would be classified as unpleasant. And yet, despite all that, these are some of my biggest fans. The people who have had the most negative reactions reading the book are, are like wedded to me, man. They're like, bonded to me that's important i I think and i'll i'll hand it back to you after i share this analogy one of the things i've noticed in my life is that when i've had relationships with people where pain is involved so when i've gotten into fights with people physical fights or um one, uh, one of the examples is like when i get tattooed so when i get tattooed it's a painful experience right you know getting tattooed for eight hours at a time is just like really painful and annoying and yet what i've noticed is is that no matter the relationship to me and and, and the pain if there's another person involved i bond to them so i bond with my tattoo artist i bond with the person i fight beside or, or even with in, in some cases like even though i fight against them i find myself bonding with them and i think pain produces i think biochemically it produces things uh, oxytocin vasopressin i think that's true but i think also ontologically it produces a um crucible or some some kind of magic where pain produces a bonding experience and i think because the book is so painful that it bonds me in the reader and and i guess i didn't really think about that until it happened until people started telling me about these stories of how they would just break down in tears reading the book or just throw the book against the wall and rage, you know, and and I was like, and you like that? (laughs) And they were like, yeah, dude, I fucking like that. I'm like, okay. And so then it kind of hit me. And so I had to search my own mind for like, Oh yeah, well, I kind of feel that way too. Like when I've been in painful experiences with people, I bond to them, even though I shouldn't, I should be pissed at them because they inflicted pain on me, but I don't. And that's a strange phenomenon and I'm still wrapping my head around it, but well, like I said, I, I promised to hand it off to you after I went off on that.
0: Well, it, it, it's funny you mentioned that because the very first four words of the book is "pain demands a response." Oh yeah. And yeah, and the the response garnered is going to be different for everyone. You know, I've I've sat in the tattoo chair for you know seven, eight, ten hours at a time. I've gone through tremendous psychological, physical, emotional pain. And I didn't even think about it until you mentioned it, but yes, you're very, you're you're correct in the notion that you are in some way, there's a thread that's woven to the one you were with when that happened. And it's, it's now disconcerting that I think about it. Thank you for that. I'm going to have some shit squirreling around in my head for the rest of the day now. But I think, and you know, you could probably uh, relate to this a little bit, but you wrote this book and this book is a work of fiction, but it was taken from some very not so fictitious events. And as you've expressed, the book was painful to write so when the readers go through it and the readers, like you said, they break that wall into the realm of belief when they, it starts to feel more real than fiction, which is the mark of all great art. And they start to feel these same things. I think that maybe that is why these people like it so much because it's forced them to feel when everything else has been fake cheese, as it were. You know, it's canned cheese. It's not the real shit. With Go Hunt America, you can experience your own outdoor adventure at the touch of your finger. You can find hunting, fishing, and camping spots anywhere in the U.S., put there by private landowners and you can even list your own. It doesn't matter if it's a large tract of land or a small dug blind. Just go to GoHuntAmerica.com to get started. Coming soon to the Google Play and Apple App Store.
1: This is Nate from Unlimited Life Concepts, and we teach people how cash flow strategy can be just as powerful as investing. Imagine being able to earn interest on every dollar that flows through your hands, whether you're spending it or saving it. We offer a lifetime membership to our financial education platform for $77, but right now you can use promo code RuggedLegacy and save 50% off. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm going to take that as a compliment, and I I, I will just add that I think we're at a, again, we're at a point in, in history, we're at a point in our culture, where because everything is so goddamn commercial, everything is so wedded to the financial, that people are afraid to take risks. I read an uh, essay by Darren Aronofsky. You know, he did the movie The Fountain. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I consider him a real artist. He's a, he's an actual filmmaker, in my opinion. And but he said he has a hard time getting movies made because his vision is kind of dark, and that every all the producers, all the money men in Hollywood want you to have quote unquote hope at the end of the movie the movie has to have hope at the end because they're trying to sell things and if people are depressed and upset or angry at the end of a movie it doesn't put them in a buying mood right right and and so there's this implicit contract between artists and the public that at the end there's going to be a hopeful uplifting message there's this implicit contract and i think that's new I think that's only happened in the last fifty years. I mean, even if you look at cinema from like the seventies, like seventies and eighties film was dark. I posted a clip from Escape from New York last week on Twitter. Did you see that?
0: I did. One of the greatest movies of all time. And if you deny that you're a liar.
1: Or a communist.
0: Yeah, one of the uh...
1: (laughs) So at the end of Escape from New York snake plissken gets the president out right he survives the president gets to do his press conference to quote save the world from nuclear destruction and what happens at the end the tape is not the one he recorded it's the song from cabby and snake plissken had switched the tapes and at the end the last thing he's doing is ripping apart the actual tape the tape needed for the for saving the world he's ripping it apart now that's that's just sinister man that is a sinister ending to a film it's the opposite of every other existential crisis film since then where the hero saves the world snake plissken destroys the world in that last scene that's what he's doing right he's taking the very the only thing according to the pretext of the film right The only thing that can save the world is that tape. And he's destroying it. Now that's a dark vision, bro. And that film was made in what, 81, 82, something like that? And I- Somewhere in there. Yeah, and I think that's a line of demarcation. I don't think art since then has been allowed, quote unquote, to have that kind of view, that kind of ethos. It's had to be uplifting No, we win in the end, we, right? Humanity, America, whatever. The idea that you could have what I consider to be like a Russian view of life, right? The, the Dostoevsky's of the world, right? Where the dark, dim, fatalistic, we're all screwed um, philosophy is just not allowed in American commercial art. And so I think part of the impetus for me was I wanted to be able to create art independent of that constraint. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to go dark or dystopian or nihilistic, because I don't consider myself a nihilist. But it does mean that you don't, you don't, you're not constrained, that the art can go wherever it goes, that there's no rules. And if it ends in a happy ending, then fine. Uh, I'm not against that. You know, I'm, I'm not one of those people that says, well, it has to be sinister and dark and nihilistic at the end in order to be real i'm not there there is hope there is love there is good in life and so that that's that's true too and i think a lot of people will if if they're pressed will admit that there's a romantic element to my book a very upbeat and romantic uh even oh well i'll just leave it at romantic a romantic view of my book and so i you know i'm not against the romantic view But what I am against is the idea that that some producer or editor or some money man is going to tell me how my book's going to end. I'm really against that. And I feel like we do it subconsciously. I feel like as artists, we're so worried about being popular and liked that we're afraid to be authentic. And I think that works from both ends. So let's say you're like a death metal band, right? And maybe you're in a good mood and you want to write a love song, but your audience is all death metal dudes, right? (laughs) Like you can't write a love song. Your death metal crowd's going to be mad at you. And, you know, what if you're, uh, you know, a cheesy pop artist and you want to write a dour song? Well, you can't do that because your audience is expecting uplift. And I feel like artists are constrained by their audience in a way that I don't like. And so what I wanted to do was weave back and forth Based on how I genuinely felt between the dour and, and, and the dark, to the romantic and the even hagiographic, I wanted to weave authentically between my own internal landscape, independent of what some audience would think, or some producer or some editor would think. Like I really wanted to as much as I could extract myself from that constraint. Because I felt like if I did that, the experience would be genuine. And that this, to tie this into the beginning of this rant, that this genuineness, this idea of authenticity is what people now are hungering for. Because they've lived through 30, 40, 50 years of this nonsense, bullshit, Madison Avenue, fake horseshit for the same amount of time I've lived through it. And they're sick of the Hallmark card nonsense. And they're sick of it, and they want something genuine. And they're also kind of sick of the, you know, over-the-top nihilism too, right? Because that's kind of the reaction. Is like, well, the the opposite of the Hallmark card is the nihilistic, everything is terrible bullshit. And and they're both fake. And and so everyone's kind of like trapped in this this um, dichotomy between nihilism and sentimentalism. And I wanted to try to thread the needle and give someone like an authentic human experience that navigated what I consider to be the real topography of a human existence, which includes highs and lows.
0: Yeah, you know, and that's where I was going with that with the uh, everybody's so just overfed with, you know, fake canned cheese that they're wanting a real block of sharp aged cheddar you know, they, they've been fed this, everything has a fucking happy ending, you know, la-di-da, or everybody dies at the end like in a Scorsese movie. And those things are good on their own. But when you, when you were saying that, you know, there's a romantic uh, element to your book, there really is. With watching the journey of uh, of, of Lyndon or with Blacks, what has, and even Isaiah, as it were. And for those of you who have not read the book, screw you, you should have done it by now. If not, go read it after this podcast. You can actually go to my website and find it because I partnered with this ugly son of a bitch right here. But that all said, there is is something romantic about the real human experience of having had enough and deciding that you are going to be the reactionary and you are going to be the result of the pendulum swinging too far back in the other direction because we all have those experiences as humans. We see that a lot with our own behavior. Oh, this boss, you know, he fired me. I'm going to go burn down his house. That is a very gross overreaction but as humans we feel that and you see that in the book there is those type of reactions but you don't really see those reactions in quote-unquote modern art it it feels like they try to dance too close to the edge and your book is a book of extremes which is it's very refreshing
1: yeah well thank you and and i will just add that there is also extreme naivete in the book, like like the characters believe in true love, capital t capital l true love, man, I mean <laughs> it is some like it is some oh, like it's so naive, right, and yet they believe in it, like they believe in it, and you know, I think of the bust, right, like one of the main female characters, and you know her relationship with both you know, blacks and, and the, the universe, you know, her relationship with after she goes to the lab and then meets Isaiah and meets all these other characters, like her relationship with the world is, is highly romantic. And, and, you know, I still believe in that there's a naivete to me that is eradicable, I believe. Um, and as dark as that book is, there is a heartbeat through it, a thin red line of, of, of romance. And, and it's genuine, you know, because I, like, I believe in fraternity, brotherhood. You know, that's another one of the romantic elements of the book is this idea of brotherhood. And it's built into the plot, right? Because one of the ideas is, is, that, is that Isaiah feels like brotherhood isn't really possible outside of genetic constraints, you know, that unless you're related, you cannot bond appropriately to act kind of above your base needs. So only if you are truly brothers, will you not, you know, bang your buddy's wife, steal your buddy's wallet, you know, gossip about your pal behind his back. Only if you're truly brothers, will you not behave this way? You know, that's part of built into the book is this idea of brotherhood, but then that true brothers will rise above these base needs, you know. And I I don't know about you, but, you know, there is there is something devastating about having your best friend do something to you that if a stranger did would suck, but you'd get over it but when your buddy does it it just kills you it's 10 times worse even though it's the same thing oh so absolutely you a, yeah you have a stranger steal your wallet or hit on your girl and it sucks and you don't like it but when your best friend does it it just like your whole universe collapses and and i you know i think there's actual biological reasons for this i get into it i mean the i believe and i think the data shows that the brain changes the the hippocampus shrinks the amygdala augments as a response to betrayal from friends and family. Um, I get more into the effects of that in the book, but the point is, is that I believe there's a physiological response. It's not it's not merely quote unquote emotional or psychological, that it's biological, physiological, that the brain and body changes when you are betrayed. Now I believe the data shows that, I believe I can back that up. and. And because of that, when you get a person who's, say, 30, 40, 50 years old, and they've been betrayed by family and friends, they are a different person physically than they would have been otherwise. And that we're living in a time where I think a lot of people are damaged this way, that a lot of people are walking around right now with stories that match up to the inmates in the book that match up to that level of betrayal and that that's why they're so pissed off because this idea of honor has left our society because we're basically, I, I consider America to be an economy, not a country. We're an economy. The, the ship has sailed on us being a country. That shit's over. That's my opinion. And it's because we just don't give a shit about each other anymore. We'll bang each other's wives. We'll steal each other's uh, money. We'll do whatever it takes to survive. We don't give a shit about each other. It's basically like Thunderdome in America. Now, I know a lot of people don't believe that, but I do because I've seen it. I've felt it. And and because of that, I think there's a lot of people walking around right now damaged at the level of the brain. Their hippocampus, their amygdala, like they're damaged, the brain damaged from the betrayals and now they're walking around just out for blood just ready for war not not i believe that i believe people are walking around right now just waiting for an excuse to go postal that's a pro if you're in a society that's based on trust and i believe you know free societies western societies are based on trust not laws like a totalitarian society they don't give a shit what you think because they have the stasi or the Waffen SS, or whoever. They have whoever's in charge of just killing people who are out of line. But in a democracy, in a free society, they can't just kill us, theoretically. They, they have to convince us to behave. And, and so in a Western society, it's really important that people think in a certain way. You know, that they trust each other, that they follow the rules. And, and I think that's breaking down, and that people no longer trust their government, each other, media church like all the institutions are broke down and that and because of that it's kind of we're we're on the precipice of a free-for-all and that's a very dangerous position to be in and i don't think people have acknowledged how precarious it is because and I'll, i'll go back to what we talked about earlier because everyone is still presenting the facade everyone is still engaged in um presenting the nicest most pleasant version of themselves and so everyone's kind of like, Oh yeah, no, he's nice. Oh, he's nice. Oh, he's a decent fella. But underneath the surface is a roiling boiling uh, doom machine. And it's just waiting for the excuse to go off. And, 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 you know, I feel like we're in a weird time right now because of this virus. Um, And, and you can notice how people's attitudes are changing, like they're dropping the mask a little bit. People's affect is a little more aggressive. I don't know if you've noticed it. I've noticed it. Um, people are a little more aggressive. People are a little more "fuck you," and 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 so you can see that that you can see it wouldn't take much for it to ignite. And so, I guess my point in all all that is that i wanted my and, and you know i wrote the book over a year and a half ago and so i didn't know this virus i just knew it was going to be something i didn't know what it was going to be although i do talk about viruses in the book i mean viruses and parasites and, and, and the, the subatomic is a very integral part of sanction but obviously i didn't know about this particular virus but the point wasn't what the particular thing is just like if you were gonna write about the consequences of World War I before that, if you were Nietzsche or you wouldn't talk about the Archduke Ferdinand getting shot because you wouldn't know about that. That would seem like way too de- detailed to know about. The idea that that is what set off World War I would seem absurd. And so I think whatever ends up setting it off is kind of irrelevant. What matters is do we live in a culture, in a society, in a time where individual actors are even in a position where they could lose it. You know, because in 1950, someone brought this up today. So, oh, well, in World War II, everyone acted normal and right and appropriately. And I said, yeah, yeah. Back then, men's testosterone levels were 800, you know, and now they're, you know, 250 or whatever. And back then, you know, people believed in their their pension and their job and their country and their Congress, you know, all that shit's gone now. And, and so, yeah, people act way worse now than they did in world war II because the, the society itself has crumbled underneath their feet. And, and this is the, this to me, this is the thing that needs analyzed. It's not the specific, you know, thing that China does or the specific thing that a virus does or the specific thing that our government does. What's most important is the psychology, the brain chemistry, the the ennui or enemy, the, the, the social disintegration that is housed in each individual person right now. You know, um, that to me is, is what's more important. And so that's, I wanted to describe the internals, both the internal... You know the endocrinology, the reality of our endocrine system, our hormones, our um, genomics, the reality of our genetic substrate, our psychology, the way we actually think. Um, I wanted to get internal because I felt like those things were more important than ever because I feel like they're all fa- they're all falling apart right now. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't psychologically healthy people and there aren't institutions that work and that it we it doesn't mean we can't pull out of this skit we could i don't i don't pretend to to know the future but what i'm saying is is people have to look at the fact that our endocrine systems are fucked up men's testosterone levels are all-time lows which is a problem right and we have to look at the fact that our social institutions are not trusted. Nobody likes Congress. Nobody likes the media. Nobody trusts the church. This is a problem, you know, and and people are suspicious of each other. And, And people are exceedingly tribal, right? I mean, you see it more and more and more where people are like, you know, well, t- tribal is the best way to put it. And, and and that tribalism, while I think it is natural, is also an indication of something, right? So in 1950, Americans were way less tribal. Uh, they were more cosmopolitan. They were more like, hey, we're all Americans. Whereas now, people are much more sequestered in their enclaves. This is one of the things... Um, well, Jordan that could Pinson, be looked at
0: that could be looked at as they were more tribal on a macro level back in World War II than in a more micro level here. There it was one very large tribe of Americans. And now you've got the left, you've got the right, you've got the spiritual and religious, you've got the secular, you've got the miniature tribes through the denominations of the religious organizations. Then you've got all these various you know, micro tribes of just various ideologies and no one can agree on a fucking thing. And like you said, everyone is suspicious of each other. And then again, with using your car analogy, while everything, you know, might be painted red, white, and blue, under the hood, you've got a lifter or a valve knocking. It's setting up for something cataclysmic.
1: Yeah, you know, um, and and I think that's what I'm more interested in is, is the drivetrain of a vehicle rather than its paint job. You know, I've had cars have catastrophic failures on the road. I, was, I had a CJ7 U-joint went out front end, and it ripped the steering wheel out of my hand when it went out, and the whole vehicle went 90 degrees into the other lane of traffic. Now, that could have killed me, you know. And the paint job on that Jeep was awesome, but <laughs> the U the joint sucked, and I, I could have died from that. I mean, I was just, it was just pure luck that nobody was coming on oncoming traffic because it ripped the steering wheel right out of my hand from a mechanical failure. And I feel like we're just one virus, one political. Uh, faux pas one economic depression away from the steering wheel being ripped out of our hands now again i think i don't think that's political analysis i don't even think it's a biological analysis i think it's a physics analysis but i'm not going to get too much into that but the point is is that is that these things that undergird the surface layer that we see are rotting underneath us and I mean, I, I haven't met too many people who disagree with that. Even if people disagree with me, disagree with my book, disagree with my philosophy, all, all that—I I haven't met too many people who argue with the idea that fundamentally, that the, the 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 culture is rotting. So even people that are very left wing, and you know, and call and call me a right wing sociopath. Even they admit that the culture is rotting. They just have a different solution, right? They have a left-wing solution. But it's not like they think everything's fine. And this this is a huge indicator. This is a flashing red light. When when all contingents say, look, we're, this is a catastrophe waiting to happen. And, you know, you take someone like uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson. He... His mission for the last few years has been to try to get the individual to improve himself as a building block to repairing the West. Even he seeks that the West is a mess. It's not like he's like, no, everything's fine. He's like, no, look, this is a problem. His solution is you fix the individual. You do that enough times. And then the individual fixes the society. That's that's his philosophy. And and that's fine. I mean, it's a legitimate philosophy. Um, But the point is, as much as he likes to point out what works, and you know, he's not like a dour person. He's not doom and gloom. He's basically, he's saying, hey, look, the West works. The West is good. Here's how we kind of repair the fissures in the foundation right now. But even he will tell you that right now it's not optimal, right? Even his analysis is like things aren't perfect. And so, and I consider him kind of a moderate. He's kind of in the middle of the road. You know, he's not real right wing. He's not real left wing. He's kind of middle of the road. And so you take far right people, far left people, middle of the road people, and pretty much everyone agrees that the culture is coming apart. Everybody has a different solution, but everyone agrees the culture is coming apart. Now, I'm sorry, but that is an indication that, that we have a we, we do have a problem. And there's very few people who are so... I don't know what the word would be
0: uh, naive or... Yeah, na- naively optimistic. I would, I would say
1: very few of those, very few. And, yeah. and
0: those are the ones that deny the indicator lights on the dashboard saying that you've dropped oil pressure right. I mean, or that, right. that light, that, that light's not true is what they're trying to say. You know, they think <laughs> there's I something,
1: <laughs> they think there's something wrong
0: with the light. Yeah. That he put exactly. Tape
1: over the check engine light, I knew a guy who did that because he didn't want to see it. I mean,
0: that's what these people are. Yeah, but it's amazing to me that we've barely scratched the surface of anything uh, related to your book. No less, this podcast uh, has definitely been interesting. But we're coming up on the hour mark, and so we're going to have to do this again to dive down the rabbit hole once more if uh you're down for it Uh, i don't think your uh your schedule between cigars and drinking are gonna slow you down any we can go down some pretty deep rabbit holes and i'll join you but yeah i will say roman mcclay is this generation's hawthorne melville Dostoevsky. Beethoven with words. What he's created, for those of you listening and watching, what he's created with the book Sanction is art in his most pure and primal form. And yes, I am a fan and I am a friend, and but I'm not just saying these things to blow smoke up Romans ass. If you haven't read the book, go to SanctionThebook.com, pick up the books. You can also go to ruggedlegacygrooming.com, and there's a link to buy the book there uh, because I even created a beard balm based off of one of the characters of this book. Uh, that said, you can check out Roman McClay on Twitter and on Instagram. He's uh, He's got two of them on Twitter, actually. It's Roman underscore McClay and McClay underscore Roman. And he made sure he covered all bases so no one could copy him. Uh, and on Instagram, it's at uh, sanction the book. Again, sanctionthebook.com dot com. You can check out the films, uh, the badass euchre cards, lighters, t shirts, books. Uh, pretty much, sanction has become its own living entity. But, Roman, thank you for coming on the show, brother. We definitely have to do this again. Yeah, yeah. Th- thank you, Jeff. I love giving creators a platform to. Talk about their work, and obviously this is something you've been very passionate about because you can't be unpassionate about it and still write 1.2, 1.4 million words about it. Uh no one does that uh on a whim. And brother, I appreciate the work that you've put out, and I'm looking forward to book three.
1: Well, thanks a lot, man.
0: Really appreciate it. All right, that's gonna do it for this episode of the Rugged Legacy Podcast. Uh, If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you subscribe to the channel. If you're listening on Google Play or iTunes, leave a review. Those really help out and get the message spread to more listeners. And if you haven't read Sanction, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) So get on that. And if you have read Sanction and you like it, there's probably something wrong with you too. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks for watching and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Rugged Legacy podcast. I hope you've been enjoying the content on all of the episodes, especially this one here. If you'd like to become a contributor and support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash ruggedlegacy and click on the support icon. Everyone wants to rise from the ashes, but very few are willing to set themselves on fire. This has been a Rugged Legacy production.